Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm your host, John Caritas. This week, we're bringing you a special episode, an in-depth look at the opioid crisis with Anne-Marie Schieber, a veteran reporter based here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'll first be speaking with her about the findings of her research, and then we'll dive into the report and hear from people battling addiction, starting recovery groups, and then we'll look at the private sector and what it's doing to combat the crisis. To learn more about the issue, swing over to blog.acton.org to read the show notes. Earlier this year, an NPR Ipsos poll showed that almost one in every three people in the United States knows someone with an opioid addiction. For this special report on Acton Line, we welcome today Anne-Marie Schieber, a reporter who has done a number of stories for us in the past. This summer, she has spent months looking into this opioid crisis and in particular, how the private sector is responding. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've spent a lot of time talking to people here in West Michigan, people who've been affected deeply by the crisis. Tell us a little about your project and how you got started. I started this project like any project, talking to my immediate circle, friends and family, of what they knew about addiction, and I was stunned by the number of them who have been impacted by this, and I did not even know it. So then I asked where they turned for help, getting their loved ones into treatment, and the answers were all over the map. But I think the one thing that rang loud and clear is that there was no quick fix. Families struggled with this for years, and spend a lot of money not getting great results. Many of us know how the addiction crisis started, the marketing of powerful opiate prescription drugs. They were widely prescribed. And also around this time, we had the Great Recession. I talked to one person who said that was enough to get him on his destructive path of drugs and alcohol. Personally, I wondered uh, what role faith played in this. You know, we, we talk about the nuns, this growing number of people who no longer identify with a particular faith. And, and maybe does this reflect a spiritual crisis? Maybe yes. Um, people who do go to church do get trapped in addiction, but perhaps churches and nonprofits need to do more in terms of appreciating the scope of the problem and, and do more in terms of outreach and prevention. So uh, you told me when we were talking earlier that one of the things you found was that for each person, it seems like there's a different kind of addiction. As a result, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to it. So how do people begin to work their way back from this if there isn't a standard playbook? Well, that's right. There, there really is not. And that's why government alone cannot solve it. It is an enormous amount of intervention, support, sometimes isolation, removing someone from a toxic environment. There's something called harm reduction. There are pros and cons to that. And then there is the faith-based approach, which which has had a lot of success. Um, It seemed to me that the ones who successfully recovered had two things in common. They were in addiction for a long time, about 10 years, And they had to find something in their life to replace that addiction. Was there a key insight that you arrived at at the end of the project, uh, some revelation that came to you at the end of this work? There is the physical addiction, and that is very real. I was surprised by how many people in recovery told me in the beginning that they really enjoyed what they were doing, that it was more psychological, it seemed. 
And they found it attractive um, to be in that state, to be in a high state. So I wondered if there was an emptiness there that needed to be filled. Drugs were there. They were the easy answer. You know, we look at government, and certainly they can do much in terms of restricting the supply. But, I mean, it's, it's impossible to plug all the holes. We, leave, we live in an easy-access world today with plenty of temptations. You really need a strong core to fend them off, and, and that's probably where churches come in. Thank you, Anne. Let's listen. In many church traditions, Lent is a time for fasting, prayer, a deeper study of Scripture, and visiting the sick and poor. Last year, in four United Methodist churches in West Virginia, the Lenten season brought worshipers something new, a seven-week series of bulletin inserts with devotional and discussion questions asking them to confront a grave spiritual crisis, opiate addiction in their families and communities. More and more, churches are starting to fill the gap in addressing this mounting social, economic, and spiritual problem. While some churches are conduits for government funding, many others are putting their own resources to work as their way of living out the gospel. The Reverend Barry Steiner Ball is a retired task force officer of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. He now talks to churches on how they can address the opiate crisis. His workshops have been held in 150 churches as well as a public school district, social service agencies like Catholic Charities, and a Presbyterian men's retreat. Reverend Ball, you bring an interesting perspective. Law enforcement, ministry, and geography, you're based in ground zero of the addiction crisis, West Virginia. There are a number of churches in the state, so how is it that the crisis got to the level that it is? It's a broad, broad problem, but um, many, many reasons, but it was kind of a perfect storm. There is the groundwork of the stigma of addiction, and it kept most of us quiet, um, spending more time judging folks who are addicted and their families than actually reaching out to them. Um, it kept us from talking about it, admitting about it when it got into our families. Um, and the stigma kept us from taking a stand and, and stepping out in faith to, to help in the healing that needed to be done. What, what I've been doing is, is trying to get rid of that stigma to, to help folks realize that there's a mental illness there. Uh, it's a lot more than just saying no. Um, and that these folks are children of God, just like ourselves, and we need to offer them the healing and grace and forgiveness uh, that we would offer anyone. I suppose we can spend a lot of money blocking people from addictive substances, increased law enforcement, protection at the border, stopping the supply, putting people in jails, residential treatment centers. The government has the resources to do that, but do you think it can get the job done alone? No, and that's what I got to see firsthand while working with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Everybody, every government agency is doing their part, but there is a gap uh, of, of relationships that need to happen. Um, one of the sayings in recovery right now is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. And the church, in all of its many forms and fashions in every community, can offer that kind of community and connection to bring these folks back, bring their families back, uh, to remind them they are loved, they are vital, they have potential, um, with, uh, just an illness got in the way of that. 
To what extent do you believe addiction is a spiritual crisis, something very personal that cannot be addressed by any one-size-fits-all approach? Oh, just just like there are many roads into addiction, uh, there are many roads out of addiction. Um, part of part of the addiction problem is trying to fill that void that that so many find in their lives, and it can be from mental illness, it can be from a spiritual um, defect, it can be. Um, uh, because of loss of job, loss of hope, or it could be just the genetic makeup of the person. But all of them need, um, either in prevention, realizing there's a better way of living than other folks around them who are using, or in recovery, that there's forgiveness. There's a way for the prodigal child to come back home, be accepted, be loved, uh, and be a vital part of a, of a local community. The mounting toll of America's opiate crisis in lives lost and lives ruined is difficult to fathom. In 2017, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 70,000 Americans died from a drug overdose, with the heartland of America, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the District of Columbia, Kentucky, the hardest hit. The early numbers for 2018 show a crisis at still unacceptable levels, 68,000 lives lost. It is a huge toll, not just for the pain it causes family and friends, but the cost it bears at the expense of anything else. In 2015, the White House Council of Economic Advisors estimated that the opiate crisis came with a $504 billion economic price tag, nearly 3 percent of GDP. Today, the economic damage wrought by opiate abuse continues to cascade down to the state and local level, putting incredible stress on health care budgets like Medicaid, the government health program for the poor, and Medicare for the disabled. The increased interventions from state welfare and child protection agencies, the police, the courts, the jails are all getting the brunt of it. The opiate crisis is also taxing the private sector. In workplaces, employers are coming to grips with a new normal. Opiate abuse by workers leads to rising health care costs, absenteeism, declining productivity. According to one study, a single opiate death costs the economy $800,000 in lost wages, lost output for employers, and lost tax revenue for governments. The average age for an overdose fatality is a prime working age, 41. The addiction crisis is creating a black hole in the economy. But there is hope. Every Tuesday at the Kuiper College Gym in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you'll find a pickup basketball game. Not of students, but older men. One of them who is on the rebound in more ways than one. Well, my name is Daniel Boone. A way to describe me would be in pursuit of seeing the captive set free. Dan Boone was captive himself. For decades, he lived in a fog of addiction, which he says obliterated his moral judgment. Lying and deception at home and work became his norm. For me, right and wrong had become circumstantial. If I knew what I was about to do was wrong, I'd simply begin a dialogue in my head of how I could do something worse. And it was considerably easier for me to do that when I was high. Throughout his addiction, Boone did attend church, and it was through that fellowship he could endure the physical and psychological withdrawal from his addiction. 
With the support of his church, he started listening to what God and Scripture had to say. As I started getting rid of the addictions, I could hear better. There is something bigger than yourself. Boone was so grateful for the experience, he founded a nonprofit to help people, especially those in addiction. He calls it 13 Tribes Ministry, in reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. His work takes him as far as Central America, but oftentimes he meets one-on-one -on -one with people next door, fighting the enemy of drugs, which Boone says is really the enemy of evil. My heart just beats for those that are that don't even realize they're in bondage, yeah. right? They're in captivity and they don't even realize it. What a great tactic by the enemy. If he right. can convince you that you're free and you don't even realize that you're sitting in a prison cell, wow, he's got you right where he wants you. Sure. In our next segment on churches and charities responding to the opiate crisis, we'll hear from those caught in the web of addiction, people in their families and how they're getting help, and as often, wanting to see their churches, priests, and pastors do more. We'll tell you about God Pods in Jail, a 12-step program custom-tailored for the Catholic faith, a Christian retreat for young adults and teens in addiction with an exceptional success rate. For Act in Line, I'm Anne-Marie Schieber. It's no secret that getting a good education can change the direction of someone's life, and in turn, the direction of society. But how should that education be delivered, and who should determine where that education will happen? On October 22, at the North House in Minneapolis, the Acton Institute welcomes Lee McGrath, Senior Legislative Counsel at the Institute for Justice, to discuss. Join us at this upcoming Acton on Tap event to explore the current state of school choice and save your seat today at acton.org events. The drug overdose crisis has left no place untouched. My name is Kristen Shelley, and I am the director of the East Lansing Public Library. So I've been a professional librarian for 30 years now. So several years ago, it was a beautiful sunny day, and I was working the information desk with a colleague, and someone ran up to the desk and said, somebody needs help in the bathroom. And when we got there, um, a woman was on the floor, and she had a needle in her arm. Rachel was a young mother. She had two children, ages six and eight. Um, she came to the library probably three times a week or more with her little boys or without her little boys. Um, Rachel had been a professional. She was college educated. All of those who interacted with her were completely shocked. We would never have guessed that this person had an issue, an opioid issue. Rachel did not survive. She is one of 702,000 Americans who have died from a drug overdose since 1999, 10% of them in 2017 alone. Prescription opiates took a foothold with the introduction of new painkillers like OxyContin. Poor rural areas were particularly hard hit. At the same time, hospitals changed their practices and pharmaceutical companies rushed in to supply. Pain was considered another vital sign, and to get accreditation, hospitals had to show they were managing pain in patients. Fast forward to 2019, and now more than 2,000 states and municipalities have sued opiate makers and distributors. 
As the crisis unfolded, government at all levels tightened regulations on opiate prescriptions. Right away, many drug users shifted to street drugs, heroin, synthetic fentanyl, and cocaine. Here's what I see going on. I see most treatment centers do not acknowledge we live in a three-dimensional world and they're using two-dimensional weapons. It'll never work. That's Dean Vandermeer, the executive director of Set Free Ministries, a global nonprofit based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The organization runs schools in developing countries, but is now devoting more and more time helping people back home trapped in addiction. It's not going to work Mm -hmm. effectively because the dimension that's impacting that person could very well be spiritual. And we don't talk about it. The ministry runs no-cost freedom appointments, intense two-on-one sessions to help drug abusers understand their addiction and show how faith in God can move them forward and into treatment. At least 60% of participants report improvement in daily function. The organization then reaches out into the community. People are alone today. Mm -hmm. They don't have a place where they can connect. So we're trying to get with local churches in town and saying, can we refer people to you? And will you continue to disciple them and envelop them into your family? Set Free Ministries also provides free service to the county jail, where inmates struggling with addiction can sign up for a special track. 1,400 people in the Kent County Jail, about 60 of them, get to be in two separate pods, and it's called the God Pod. And they're there for uh, as long as they're incarcerated, which is up to a year or less. And they commit to a very stringent uh, schedule of learning about God and, and learning his ways. Some inmates game it. They sign up to win favor with a judge. Vandermeer says, however, he can reach a number of them with some no-nonsense talk. I go to jail. I'm in jail this past week. Yeah. I say, hey, how's it going, guys? And they say, it's going good. I says, no, it's not. You're captives. Stop. You're not doing well. You're captives. How'd you get here? We don't know. I says, I can tell you how you got here. 90% of you. I can tell you how you got here. Do you know? They don't know. I said, I know. I says, 90% of you, 90% of you don't know one verse in the Bible. And I know the verses and you don't. And because I know the verse, I'm very cautious not to do that. And you don't even know the verse that will set you free. Would you like to know the verse? They're like, please. First Peter 5, 8. Sometimes intervention can work before jail. Dear mom and dad, just wondering how you guys have been, the family, your trip, and anything else that's been going on. For me, I have a lot to tell you. That's Jim Osterhaven, sitting with wife Melissa, reading a letter from their 19-year-old son, Will. Will entered a Christian-based residential recovery program for drug addiction called Adult and Teen Challenge. It boasts a phenomenal success rate if you stayed the length of time that you are supposed to stay. The program lasts 12 to 18 months and is supported entirely by donations. Residents can quit the program anytime because life at Adult and Teen Challenge requires a buy-in. They're extremely uh, tight on um, outside influences. There's no telephone, there's no internet, there's no television, there's no radio, there's no nothing. The Osterhavens didn't know where to turn when Will developed a drug problem at age 16. It was a path they never imagined, living in an affluent community with good schools, plenty of churches, and a strong economy. When Will turned 18, a legal adult, the Osterhavens could no longer force him into treatment. Life became intolerable, so they kicked him out. He lived with another family for a while, then on the streets. 
It was Dean Vandermeer who told them about an adult and teen challenge program nearby. They found Will, and he agreed to try it. It turned out to be a good move. He's doing great. <laughs> He's a completely different person. You have letters. He writes you letters. Did he ever do that in the past? <laughs> we no. couldn't get him to, to write his name on something, let alone write a letter. The first letter we got, I looked at her and said, holy cow, not only can you read it, it's punctuated right, it makes good sentence, it's good grammar. Where did he get, where'd that come from? <laughs> the letters reflect their son's renewed faith in God, according to Jim and Melissa. Will is now speaking to high school students about his recovery and how his trips to jail and rejection of friends and family are behind him. Well, I think faith has, plays a major role because what, what is faith? Faith is, faith is purpose. Uh, my name is Bob Finaro. I am a uh, supervised limited licensed psychologist, and I've been a therapist now in my 40th year. And I have had, over the course of my professional career, an opportunity to deal with many different kinds of addictions. Bob Finero works with a number of families from his Catholic parish. His focus is on the psychology of addiction, but he believes there is another element of successful recovery, which he says only the churches can address. I think our faith offers a great deal. I, I think there is, is consolation, there is support, there is openness, there is non-judgmentalism. I think the scriptures are packed with non-judgmentalism. You know, we should not be judging a person who's, who's just, you know, really falling apart. We need, we need to reach out and accept them for who they are as people and not judge them for the, for the fact that they have this very huge weakness, this very huge disease, this real serious problem in their lives. So is this where you hold your group meetings? This is. And how, uh, how are they going? Good. Um, the last two meetings we've had attendees. The first two we did not. Uh, it's growing steadily. Jonathan Hicks organized the first Catholics in Recovery support group for the Diocese of Grand Rapids. I visited him recently at the Catholic Information Center. A recovering drug and alcohol abuser himself, Hicks saw the need for a 12-step program that would fit more closely with his Catholic teaching. 12-step programs urge individuals to admit weakness and surrender to a higher power. For most people, but not all, that's a belief in God. Still, religion can be a dicey topic in the groups. I mean, people come in with all kinds of resentments, and a lot of people have left the church are very resentful of the church, so you don't want to go in there talking about Jesus and Mary and all these things, because it might get people to walk away, right? So, when Hicks wanted a firmer foundation in his faith, he would head to Bible studies at his church. But he really wanted to bridge 12-step recovery with Catholic teaching. And I was very blessed in having a supportive parish that really, I think, understood what I was going through, a, a very supportive priest that was really, you know, took a lot of time with me and really met me where I was at at that point. And I, th I really credit that to the, you know, not only my recovery, but also staying Catholic in a way. And I just wanted to be able to give that to others. Hicks has been promoting the group and is surprised more people have not shown up. According to numbers from the federal government, nearly 20 million people in America are suffering from a substance use disorder. The most effective way to get people here and just about I think everybody that has come here, this is how it's happened, in the confessional. Um, 
a lot of times there, are, I think, are you know people in recovery and they're they're trying to um, really get right with God, and they'll end up there, you know. And I think there there's also there's a lot of um, Catholics in the church that are struggling with this very silently. Struggling, but eventually finding hope. Without faith, I'd be in a gutter. I wouldn't be here at all. I would be dead. I would have been a dead person that overdosed in her apartment. Um, I, I'm not the church type, but I definitely believe in God. I believe that things happen to me for a reason. And I definitely relied on God often in prayer when things got hard or when I didn't know what to do or where to go. If a person feels like they haven't lost everything, that there still is some hope, and hope is huge. Just a little bit at first, a little bit of hope, you can build on that. The institution of civil society, families, churches, voluntary groups, are the primary sources of a society's moral culture. These are often the refuges and healing sanctuaries, the last resort, for those who have tried and failed to kick their addictions for years. In the opiate crisis, churches, nonprofits, and volunteers are proving that every day. For Act in Line, this is Anne-Marie Schieber. Thank you for listening today. To reach our podcast team here at Acton and to let us know what you think of the show, you can email us at actonline.com one word, at acton.org.